0: Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode three hundred and forty-seven of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. My guest today is Near Al, and uh, if you don't know Near Al, I promise you, he's already changed your life, and you're going to figure out why. If you have anything to do with technology, which you do because you're listening to a podcast, well. Nir's got something to do with that, and I've been uh, longing to bring you this interview for a long time. Today's episode is brought to you by Serve HQ. If you work with volunteers and a team, you've got to check out their online software subscription tools. You get a free 14-day trial at servehq.church. And also, it's brought to you by Nona Jones's newest book, From Social Media to Social Ministry. You can get a brand new free guide if you pre-order at digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. So just go to digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. Anyway, man, I'm so excited to bring you Near AL. So uh, you ever notice your phone's a little bit addictive? Uh Uh-huh. And you wonder why? Why can't you stop the scroll? Why are you on Instagram? Why are you on Snapchat? Why are you on TikTok? Why are you on, uh, you know, so often? Well, Near AL, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Hooked. And it took Silicon Valley by storm And in the book, Hooked, Neer explains the principles that companies and leaders can use to, quote, hook people on forming good habits. Now, he says, hey, these are supposed to be good habits. Now, in his most recent book, which we talk about as well, Indistractable, he looks at how to break the addiction with technology because it's impacting so many of us. And he says that becoming indistractable will become a superpower for leaders in the future. So, if you ever think you spend a little bit too much time on your phone, you're going to love this episode. A little bit more about Nir. He writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He has been a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner School of Design at Stanford. He has co-founded and sold two tech companies and in 2003 was dubbed by the MIT Technology Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's the author of two best-selling books, Hooked and Indistractable, and uh, The Globe and Mail, which is a Toronto-based newspaper called Indistractable, the best business book of 2019. So, so glad to have Nier with us today. Hey, uh, I've recently partnered with Serve HQ, and if you never heard of them, they offer two online subscription software tools for churches, and a lot of you will remember this. Trained up, remember trained up? Yep, and huddle up. A lot of you use them, but if you don't, you need to check them out. So, With the ability to send highly engaging mass video text messages and video emails, your church will always be in the loop and know what's going on. That's even more important now that things are reopening and not everybody's in the room. Their safe chat feature lets you stay in direct contact with your people without worrying about inappropriate private communications. It's like a smart private social platform for your church members and your volunteers. Serve HQ's training features let you offer engaging video courses for everything from volunteer training to Bible training, member onboarding, leadership training, and they've got a library of 800 videos, or you can create your own. So check them out at servehq.church, and when you do it, you get a free, no-obligation, 14-day trial account. So just go to ServeHQ. Church Man, I love talking to Nona Jones, and she's got a brand new book coming out this summer called From Social Media to Social Ministry. And I sat down with Nona and I asked her, hey, Nona, um, why are churches so dependent on their buildings for ministry? Here's what she had to say.
1: For so long, we've thought of church as a program. We've thought of it as a place. We've thought of it as a date, time, and location. So even now, with this push to reopen church, it's almost as if like the last four months have taught us nothing. <laughs> like <laughs> we've got to open the building because if we don't open the building, what? <laughs> I, I've yet, I've yet to hear an answer to that question. And so, um, on the, on the plus side, I think people have definitely seen this as an opportunity to become more savvy uh, about digital ministry. I think on the minus side, people have still not yet understood, that ministry can and should happen outside of the four walls of the church.
0: So Nona takes all of her experience as a church leader and as the head of global faith-based partnerships at Facebook and puts it all together in a brand new book from social media to social ministry releases June 23rd. Soft cover will be available August 4th. But if you act now for a limited time, you can get a free practical guide to using Facebook for building a digital community. You can order the book, and download the free guide at digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. So head on over to digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. I've got a What I'm Thinking About segment coming up, and I'm going to talk about the trap that so many churches might fall into this summer as they reopen their buildings, and uh, how do you manage the tension between in-person and online ministry. So that's coming up at the end of the episode. But in the meantime, my conversation with Near Al. Nir, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you on. Uh, I'd love to start actually with your first book. We're going to talk a lot about Indistractable, but you wrote a book that became very quickly the talk of Silicon Valley, and in many ways it still is. So can you give us uh, why you wrote Hooked and what that book is all about?
2: Sure. So I'm what you call a behavioral designer. So I help companies build the kind of products and services that build healthy habits in people's lives and the goal behind hooked was to democratize these tactics that are used by the gaming companies and by social media companies to get people hooked to their products so that the rest of us can build the kind of products and services that help improve people's lives and that's exactly what's happened over the past five years uh companies in the education space like kahoot the world's largest educational software uses the hook model to get kids hooked onto in classroom learning uh, Fitbod uses the hooked model to get people hooked to exercising in the gym. I've worked with uh, people in the publishing industry to get people into the habit of reading a paper, like the New York Times, is one of my for- former clients. Uh, in the healthcare space, getting people to get a habit of taking their medication or using a particular uh, uh, medical device. Uh, I even profile in the book uh, the Bible app is, yeah, uh, is an new app. Version. That- Right. Yeah, exactly. You version is, a, is an example of a product that uses the hook model to get people into the habit of engaging with scripture. So I really do believe that we can use these amazing technologies, not just for video games and social media, we can use them to build wonderful, healthy habits in people's lives.
0: And, and in some respect, then your work parallels to some degree, stuff that James Clear or Charles Duhigg has done, like how do you perform a habit, But it really lit up the tech world because also Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, all the apps, uh, Snapchat, they, they, TikTok, I'm sure is probably one of the most latest incarnations of apps that really have figured out and companies that have really figured out how to get us hooked. Um, can you walk us through the sequence of like the neural programming that happens that that creates a habit for better or for worse?
2: Yeah, so Hooked is really about how to do this through products. And there's a lot of, uh, there's quite a few differences between building a habit for yourself and designing a product or service to help people form a habit. Um, So if you take YouVersion, for example, if you talk about the the Bible app, it's one of these apps that I think is very habit forming, but very few people uh, give it enough credit. We think of TikTok and Facebook and Instagram, but we don't realize how many uh, products can be used to help people form healthy habits in their lives. Uh, And of course, this is all a matter of opinion, right? If your values, Don't include engaging with scripture. Well, then you think it's a frivolous thing for people to engage with the Bible. And I would argue I hear the same exact sentiment from people who think that Facebook and TikTok is a frivolity. Uh, It's really about your values and what you want to spend your time on earth doing. Uh, But if we use these products correctly and we design them appropriately, they can actually uh, help people uh, do more of what they want to do, whether that's going to the gym or uh, eating healthier or engaging with scripture or engaging with loved ones. We can do this facilitated through technology. So the way the Hooked model works is this. So it starts off with a trigger. A trigger comes in two forms. We have an external trigger and an internal trigger. An external trigger is some kind of ping, ding, ring, or thing in your environment that prompts you to action. Now, there's another type of trigger called an internal trigger, which we're going to get back to later. So if you use, for example, Facebook or the Bible app, the external trigger is pretty obvious. It's a notification on your phone. Now, the action phase of the hook is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So on Facebook, for example, it's opening the the app and scrolling the feed. Uh, With the Bible app, it's opening the app, reading the scripture. Uh, then comes the variable reward phase, and the variable reward phase comes from the psychology of B.F. Skinner, and this is something that you don't find, I think, in, in in you know James Clear or Charles Duhigg books around personal behavior change. Mm-hmm. This is about where a product would engage a, a person through variable rewards. Now, variable rewards comes from the the classic work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. He found that when a reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement, when there's some kind of uncertainty there, the classic experiment, he had these pigeons that he put inside a little box, and he let these pigeons peck at a disc. And every time the pigeon pecked at the disc, they would receive a little reward. And at first he could train these pigeons to peck at the disc. And this is called operant conditioning. You've probably done this with your puppy, right? <laughs> that like yeah. you get them to do a trick, they, you give them a, a, a treat. Well, one day he ran out of these food pellets. He didn't have enough of these little rewards. And so he couldn't afford to give it to the pigeon every time. He could only give it to the pigeon once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, no treat, no reward. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so in all sorts of things that we find most engaging, most captivating, most habit forming, you always find an element of variability. Why do you think people love watching spectator sports? right? Because you don't know how it's going to end, right? You don't know how that ball or the puck, you don't know where it's going to go. It's variable. There's uncertainty. A game isn't that much fun when you know who won the match, right? If you record it and somebody told you who wins, it's not as much fun, right? There's uncertainty there. What makes a book fun to read? What makes a movie fun to watch? What makes romance romantic? What makes a slot machine something that people like to engage with? Uncertainty, variability. And so when we use a product online, like Facebook, for example. That scrolling and scrolling and searching for whatever it is you're looking at. Uh, some of it is interesting. Some of it is mundane. That variability is the reward that is really the fuel of these hooks. Hmm. Then finally, the last step of the hook model is the investment phase. The investment phase, and this is something you don't see when it comes to traditional you know, personal behavior change, like you talked about the other books that help people change their own habits. This is specific to product design is that when the user puts something into the product that improves it with use, this creates what we call stored value. Stored value means that the product gets better and better the more it is used, which is revolutionary in the history of manufacturing. So when you think about when Henry Ford is credited with saying you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black. Yeah, yeah. Why did he say that? Because it was really hard for him to retool his factory just because one customer wanted their car red, another wanted a purple car, that was really hard to do. Well today, we can make individual versions of our product for each and every customer. Because when you give a company data, content, followers, reputation, any of these things store value. So as opposed to physical goods, right? If you think about everything in the physical world, depreciates, it loses value with wear and tear. Habit forming products do the opposite. They appreciate, they get better and better the more you use them. The more data, the more content, the more interaction, the more skill, the more reputation you build in one of these platforms, you are customizing the service to an audience of one. And it actually wouldn't be that interesting. If you logged into my Pinterest account, my Facebook account, my YouVersion account, it wouldn't be that interesting because it's been tailored to me based on the data I've given these companies. And it's through successive cycles through these four steps, trigger, action, reward, investment, that habits are formed, that tastes are shaped until, and this is what we I talked about earlier, I would get back to, the internal trigger forms an association with the product's use. And this is where the habit takes over. So unlike a product that has to be triggered with an external trigger, right, that always requires a ping, a ding, a mm-hmm. ring, some spammy advertising, some annoying messaging, eventually a habit-forming product doesn't need that stuff. A habit-forming product is one where it has attached its use to an internal trigger, not an external trigger, not a ping or ding, right. but something that is going on inside the user. That you what is want the, to do it. Where, what is a, a, little, a little bit of a flip side? It's because you feel a discomfort not doing it.
0: Okay, okay. an
2: internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. So when I'm lonely, check Facebook. When I'm uncertain, I Google. When I'm bored, well, there's limitless options, right? Mm -hmm. I check the news. I check stock prices, sports scores, Pinterest, Reddit, lots of products and services to ease this uncomfortable sensation of boredom. So the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product, whether it's enterprise, consumer web, doesn't matter, online, offline, is to connect the product's use to one of these internal triggers, to an uncomfortable emotional state that you get relief from using that product or service.
0: Okay, this is fascinating because, uh, you know, I I think I've I've thought about that a lot. You look at um, Instagram, Mm-hmm. And every, most of us have Instagram, but you're right. Your Instagram looks very different than mine. Mine looks very different from yours. Not just the number of people that we follow, a number of followers, but like all the the people who would scroll up. Like right. the algorithm determines what I see based on my past input, which I think you could argue somehow makes it better and sometimes makes it a bit worse. It's like, I'd
2: like well, a little and, more variety. And primarily you, you've chosen, right? The people right. that you want to follow. So your feed is going to be customized based on on what you've uh, decided was was interesting for you. But
0: even Instagram now decides what I see among the people who follow. It's like, oh, you really like this one, so I'm going to give you more of that one.
2: It gives you suggestions, right, where you can say, okay, if you like this one, maybe you want to follow another person.
0: So I'm thinking about um, the different leaders who are listening, and a lot of us have very predictable products and very predictable services. Are Mm -hmm. we missing something there with the, uh, you know, the randomness, what do you call it, the variable reward? Uh, how, do, how do you see that play out as a strategy for leaders?
2: Well, it's really, it's not about, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, f- sometimes folks read m- my book hooked and they misinterpret it as saying, oh, this is gamification, right? Mm. Add points, add badges, add leaderboards, add coupons, and you're going to make it variable. And that's not, a, that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, most of the time gamification falls on its face because anytime you have a reward, the purpose of the reward is to scratch the user's itch. So actually we start at the end. Remember I talked about those internal triggers. That's yeah, yeah. actually where we start. We start by understanding what is the user's itch? What is the internal trigger on a psychological basis, not just on a functional basis. A lot of times when I, you know, in my consulting practice, I'll talk to a, a client and I'll say, okay, what's the what's the internal trigger here? What does the product do for the customer? What's the customer's itch? And they'll get down to, you know, brass tacks of functionality. Oh, we have this, you know, technology that does this and that. No, 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 no. I want to know on a psychological level, what is the internal trigger? Is it uncertainty, anxiety, fatigue, fear, loneliness? What is the feeling that we are going to make better? And so that's what we have to start with. Once we understand the internal trigger, then we can build the variable reward to scratch that itch and yet leave the user wanting more. So if the, if the internal trigger, you know, I see this a lot with, uh, with, with, um, enterprise products, uh, SaaS products where the, uh, you know, you sell into an enterprise and what the customer really wants is, you know, that what they feel, what the internal trigger is uncertainty, anxiety, mm. fear. And so the, the variable reward has to give them certainty around what to do next, right? That's the purpose of the variable reward. But, you know, many times I see people lobbing on gamification, points, badges, and leaderboards. That's super annoying if that doesn't solve my problem, right? If I'm bored, gamification is great. Now I want to be entertained. But if I'm fearful, anxious, and uncertain, I don't want gamification. I want certainty. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, I get it. We have to make sure that the variable reward scratches the itch of the internal trigger every time. So can
0: you give us a very specific example, say on an app we would know, whether that's the Bible app or Instagram or Facebook or something like that, how that principle is applied well?
2: Sure, um, take your pick. So let's say, um, I don't know, with with Facebook, if the the internal trigger is primarily loneliness, it's seeking Mm. connection, it's this base human need to understand others and to be understood ourselves. Well, that's the internal trigger. You do that many times a day, whether it's on, you know, pick your social network of choice. You do that many times a day. Uh, The action is to just simply open the app. The variable reward is the uncertainty around what you might find in that feed, right? What's going on with your friends? They post interesting photos. What do the comments say? Uh, How many likes does something get? all of these variable rewards in a product like, like a social network, like Facebook or Instagram, I would actually go back to good old email. I think email is the mother of habit forming technology, right? Mm -hmm. Email is full of variable rewards. What does the email say? Is it spam or did you, is it something important from work? Is it urgent? Is it not urgent? Is it good news? Is it bad news? All this variability is why we keep checking and checking these emails. Many times when we don't even have an external trigger, we're doing it. We're queuing ourselves. Whenever we're uncertain about what to do at work or what might be going on or bored, the impulse is to take out our phone and check email God knows how many times a day.
0: Okay, so you got tens of thousands of leaders listening right now. Uh, Some of them lead churches. Some of them lead businesses they're like near. I've got the guy who revolutionized Silicon Valley on the line. How on earth do I use this in 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 my company? How do I use this in my church? Like like break it break it down for us. If if they ask you that question, how would you answer it?
2: Well, we want to find what the habit is. So if you're building a product uh, then the, the question is, what's the habit that you want to uh, to create through that technology? So uh, you just follow these four basic steps of asking yourself these questions of what is the internal trigger, right? What's the psychological itch that you seek to scratch? What's the external trigger that prompts the user to action? The action phase, the key question is, what's the, what's the key behavior and how can it be made simpler, the variable reward phase is are we scratching the user's itch and yet leaving them wanting more? And then finally, the investment phase is the user putting something into the product in anticipation of a future reward. Is it something that makes the product better with use? And when you ask yourself these five fundamental questions, you can figure out if you're you know, building a new product, you can figure out how what that product should look like, what the user experience should be, and if you have an existing product in market then you can figure out where the leaks are, where the product is not engaging enough by using this as a diagnostic tool because this same pattern is repeated in all kinds of products, enterprise, consumer web, online, offline. We see the same pattern repeated again and again. Now, I will say, not every product has to be habit-forming, okay? Many products don't need a habit, right? If you're selling car insurance, you don't use car insurance habitually. There's no need to form a habit. Now, the problem is, If you don't build a habit, you better have some kind of other competitive advantage, whether that's intellectual property, economies of scale, a brand, something to create that competitive moat. Because if you don't, you're going to be fighting on price and features on price and features all day long, right? So Geico says, uh, you know, 15 minutes will save you 15%. And then the general comes out and says, oh, yeah, well, we'll save you 17% in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly fighting on price and features, which, of course, diminishes margins. And so you better have some kind of competitive advantage. Habits help you establish that competitive advantage. So think about Google, for example, right? When was the last time you sat down and you said, hmm, I wonder who makes the best search engine? (laughs) Is it DuckDuckGo? Is it Bing? Is it, you know, who makes the best search? No, you don't do that. And so this is the amazing power of of a habit because once the consumer has a habit in their mind, they just do it with little or no conscious thought. They don't even consider their options. They don't even look at what the competition might have to offer. Bing, you know, the number two search engine is so desperate to get you to search with them that they will literally pay you money to get you to search with them. And nobody does it. And nobody does. Yeah. No, we don't remember to. And in fact, you know, people say, oh yeah, but Google is so much better. That's why I use it. No, you're backwards rationalizing. Because what studies find is that when you compare the search results from Google to Bing and you strip out the branding, they've done these third-party analyses, people can't tell the difference. It's a 50-50 preference split. And yet Google owns, what, 90% of the search engine market because of one reason, habit. They don't have a better product. It's simply because of a habit.
0: So you've touched on something. I just want to case study this with you for a second because I think it applies both to church and business leaders. Uh, One of the things I do is I send out an almost daily email to over 50,000, almost 60,000 leaders. And uh, I did that when Facebook changed the algorithm. Facebook drove a lot of uh, traffic to my site. Then Zuckerberg changed things overnight. And, you know, you can just watch it fall off a cliff. And I thought, well, I really want to connect with people. I'm going to try email. So I started emailing on a more regular basis and I was terrified of unsubscribes. So what I found is the list is doubled in size. It's got a huge open rate. And um, when you were going through the characteristics of getting hooked on something, it's like, yeah, I try to help people. I give them a daily leadership tip. There's usually a link to something else I've written. So when I'm thinking about businesses, I look at a lot of newsletters I read or emails I read and letters or emails I don't. And the ones I don't read are predictable. And so can you kind of just comment on that and talk about some things we can do? Because I think email is one of the most underappreciated strategies available to business leaders these days that most people miss. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think about that. I'd
2: love to pick your brain on that. You know, for many products, I I talk to many business leaders who have a product that itself will not be habit forming. And the, and the, the biggest reason a product will not be habit forming is because of the frequency of use. So it's only these kind of products that are used at least within a week's time or less that could ever have a chance of forming a habit. And, of course, the more you use a product, the more likely it is to become a habit. So if we know that the average smartphone user checks their home screen 150 times a day, that means the habit-forming potential of these technologies is very, very high because the frequency of use is so high. But what if your product is not used every day, right? What if it's a product that's rarely used? Like you know we talked about car insurance earlier. Well, then what, what do you do? What you have to do is to bolt on a habit-forming experience. Okay, how do you do that? You use what we call the two C's. The two C's stand for content and community. Mm. That if you can build a habit around something that occurs much more frequently than the purchase, that is a way that you can bolt on a habit-forming product. So let me give you two examples. When it comes to community, for example, I'm sorry, content, let's do content first. So you, do you know Williams-Sonoma? Do you have that in Oh, yeah, in yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. So, okay, you have it there too, right? Okay, so Williams-Sonoma, they sell cookware, right? Uh, pots, pans, uh, coffee makers, these things that you just do not buy every week. It will never be a habit. So what did they do? They started a website called Taste. Taste.com has been rated one of the best cooking-related websites on the on the web. And every day, twice a day, they publish interesting content. Interviews with chefs, uh, recipes, all kinds of interesting content. So like you, they have created this content consumption habit where people will type in taste.com just like they'll type in New York Times or CNN or Fox News because they want to see what interesting content taste.com has posted. And of course, they send it over email as well. And the variable reward is what is in that content, right? That becomes the habit. And so in this case, the mantra I want folks to remember is that monetization is a result of engagement, not the other way around. Uh-huh. Monetization is a result of engagement. If you can keep people engaging, of course, you know when it is time to buy some cookware, where am I gonna go?
1: You're gonna think William Sonoma, William Sonoma,
2: 100%, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Okay, the other example is Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club. Now the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club Turns out three, are you a member by chance?
0: Uh, I'm not, but uh, I think I have friends who would be, yeah.
2: Okay, so 300,000 Americans are members of this club, 300,000 Americans, and talk about a product that is not bought with sufficient frequency to form a habit. People do not buy Christmas ornaments every week. Yeah, no kidding. Right? 300,000 Americans are members of this club. Why? Because of a community habit. You can go to Hallmark stores across the country in the middle of the summer, in July, and you will see a line at the door. Why? Because they are giving people the the facility to form community. People are desperate to Mm -hmm. interact with each other. And this is particularly pertinent to to church leaders. People are desperate to connect with other people. And so this Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club is the rationale for people to get together throughout the year. Check this out. If you're a member of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club, one of the privileges is that when a new shipment of Christmas ornaments comes in, in the middle of summer, you're invited to help unpack them and stock the shelves. I know, right? That's brilliant. (laughs) This is the incentive, why? Well, because Bruce is gonna be there and Marjorie's gonna be there and my friends that I've been interacting with throughout the year are gonna be there. So the product is the Christmas ornaments, Mm. but the service, why people keep coming back is for the interaction with their community. And so these are the two C's that we can bolt onto a product that's not used with sufficient frequency to be a habit itself.
0: That's absolutely huge. And I think that's one of those things where people might just stop right now, go replay the last five minutes and go, <laughs> I could work on this for two or three months until I figure out a new strategy. This is really good. So you wrote the book that kind of got us all hooked on our phones, or at least contributed to that. They well, were on their not way. Not to the
2: bad stuff. Not to the bad stuff. Remember, just the good
0: stuff. The Bible
2: the app. Stuff, you got us Bible, addicted exactly, to the Bible but, app. Right. Exactly. That, that you know, Facebook and the gaming companies knew these techniques years and years before. My goal was to democratize these techniques. They didn't you know. P- Facebook didn't need to read my book. They already know these techniques. Gotcha. The game companies already knew them. What I wanted to do is to expand the use of these products so that everyone listening can use these techniques as well. And
0: your book's had a huge impact. And uh, now your new book, Indistractable, is like, okay, so we're all glued to our phones. We got a million things coming at us. Um, And uh, tell me why you wrote Indistractable. Because it's a really interesting one-two punch, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was really about this problem that I had myself, that I found that I was distracted a few years ago. Uh, I remember there's this one particular instance with my daughter that really made me reassess my relationship with distraction. We had this afternoon planned where we just had this beautiful daddy-daughter afternoon and I remember we had this activity book of things that daddies and daughters could do together. And in this activity book, there was this one exercise of asking each other this question, if you could have any superpower what superpower would you want? Hmm. And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said because in that moment I decided that it was a good time to be on my device and my daughter got the message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. Yeah. And by the time We've I looked all been up in there, yeah, she she left the room. She decided, "Okay, daddy, I'll go play with with a toy outside." And that's when I realized that I, I really had to reassess my relationship with distraction because it wasn't just with my daughter it was i would sit down at my desk to you know to to write to get some work done and yet i'd end up you know on google or checking email or i don't know what else and i wasn't able to to do the work i wanted to do i would say i was going to exercise and i didn't i would say i was going to eat right and i wouldn't and i decided you know if i could have any superpower i would just want the power to live with personal integrity what if you just did what you said you would do? What would your life be like? Because, you know, I wish I had the excuse that maybe our parents or grandparents had of, well, I didn't know what to do, (laughs) right? I don't know how to lose weight, right? I don't know how to be better at my job. I don't know how to have better relationships. Unfortunately, fortunately, we don't have that problem anymore. If you don't know how to do something, just Google it. It's all out there. (laughs) A 100%, yeah. Who doesn't know how to do these things? Google it, it's there. So the problem is no longer that we have an information gap. The problem is no longer that we can have this excuse and say, well, I didn't know. The problem is that we keep getting distracted from doing the stuff we know we want to do. And so that's the superpower I wanted to develop. So the first step um, was I read every book on the topic. I initially mm. thought, oh, my goodness, it's the technology that's doing it to me, right? The technology is hijacking in my brain. I bought every book on the topic that I could possibly find, and they all basically said the same thing. Technology is causing this problem. Stop using technology. written by a professor who doesn't have a social media account.
1: <laughs>
2: Fair enough. give me a break. Give me a break. I mean I, if, if I stopped using email, yeah uh, if I stopped using social media, I, I couldn't I wouldn't be in business anymore right mm-hmm. Like how can I it's so it's so uh, elitist to say just stop using these technologies. Well, and, and
0: sometimes in the Christian world, they're written by monks who live in the desert, so to speak, right? It's like <laughs> that's I, I have a job, I'm not
2: you know, what do I do? Exactly, and frankly, you know, we've been through this before, so I used to be clinically obese, and I remember when I was trying to diet desperately, I would buy these books that that told me how to do these, you know, 30-day plans, yeah. 30 days, no junk food, 30-day detoxes, 30-day this, and of course, what happens on day 31? You make up for lost time, right? It's no. like, you here comes the chips, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because you hadn't figured out why you do things against your better interest. Why hmm. do you get distracted? And so the same thing is going on with our technology. We have this tech boogeyman that we love to blame, that we say is hijacking our brains. It's addicting us. And in fact, it's not true Hmm. that this problem is much, much older than people realize it didn't. Distraction didn't start with the iPhone and with Facebook. Give me a break. Do we really think if Zuckerberg tomorrow said, you know what? I'm sick of this. The world's breathing down my neck. I'm done, right? I have enough money. I'm shutting off Facebook. Do we really think we're going to start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in our spare time? No, we'll go back to exactly the same things we've always done. We'll get distracted one way or another. In fact, Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interests. 2,500 years before the iPhone, and every successive generation has this moral crisis uh, that, that the latest technology is causing these problems, and it never, ever is. We had this conversation about the radio, the television, the comic book. All of these things were, were that they use the same exact language to blame. And the reason we do this is because we don't want to get to the root cause of why we get distracted in the first place.
0: I want to I want to go there because I think you're absolutely right. Every generation has this challenge. In my last book, I wrote about you know it's not necessarily a technological thing. We a lot of us grew up with the dad who was always in the garage because he didn't want to talk to the kids and yeah. the mom who was distracted. Right? It's just it was a '68 Camaro that took dad away. And uh, now it might be gaming or it might be his phone or something. But you you raised early in the book, you said something really interesting. First of all, you quoted, and I, I want to use this in the future. Uh, I think it's Paul uh, Virilio, if I've got his name right, a philosopher yep. who said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, here we are. We kind of have the shipwreck. But um, Yuval Harari said the greatest threat, this was in a TED interview he did last year, Uh, today is what he calls human hacking, the ability of tech to hijack our ability to think for ourselves. And then you argue at the beginning of Indistractable that there'll be two kinds of people who let their attention and lives be controlled. There'll be two kinds of people, people who let their attention be controlled by others, and then people who will call themselves indistractable. I want to talk about what's actually at stake. Other people have said focus is a new superpower, which I tend to agree with. But Do you think it's as dire as Yuval Harari says it might be, or that really like people who are distractible are really going to be at a huge competitive disadvantage in the future? I'd love to unpack that.
2: So I don't agree with Harari's assessment. I think he makes it sound as if this is an inescapable thing. Ah. Uh, I think that if you are aware of what is going on uh, and you have tactics to do something about it, I mean, that's what indistractible is all about. Yeah you can be indistractable. So I think, you know, uh, Harari's diagnosis, I I know that Harari has one time said that in the future, technology will know you better than your mother. Right. And uh, that's supposed to be very scary. That, you know, if technology knows you better than your mother, then it can get you to do things like your mother used to do when you were a child. And that's a very scary image. And a lot of tech critics use this very inflammatory language because let's face it, it gets a lot of clicks. Mm Mm-hmm. But then, of course, my first thought was, wait a minute. Don't most people rebel against their parents? (laughs) I remember my mother telling me to do all kinds of things that I was not going to do because she told me to do them. Right. And this is what's happening right now. We are waking up to the fact that as good as these technologies are, as amazing as their algorithms might be, we can hack back. Hmm. Who doesn't know that these devices are designed to hack our attention. I use the word hack in terms of computer hackers, yeah, right? Yeah, to hack yeah. means to gain unauthorized access to something, right? And so any form of media, whether it's Fox News or CNN or the New York Times or Facebook or any form of media, their job is to capitalize and monetize your eyeballs because they sell them to advertisers. Does anybody not know that? Yeah. Does anybody not know that this is the way media companies make money, they sell advertising? Good morning. Right. Yes, yeah. this is what they do. But that doesn't mean we can't hack back. And the way we hack back is to understand how they do this, realize that they have a big Achilles heel inside every one of their business models, which is that, guess what? We have a choice. Hmm. We can do something about these these, uh, these media companies, whatever form they take. Or any other distraction for that matter. You know, you you mentioned, you know, whether dad was escaping into the garage with the Camaro Mm. or worse, right? Whether it's too much booze, too much news, too much whatever. It's all for the same reason, which we talked about earlier, these internal triggers. Mm. That what we have to start realizing is that we need to face the fact that the reason we get distracted, the reason we go off track is an inability to cope with discomfort in a healthier manner. That's Mm. all it is.
0: Is that under the idea that time management is pain management which right. I thought was really and I never heard it expressed that way can you explain that and unpack that near Sure here?
2: sure so you know th- when we think about this deeper question that Plato posed 2500 years ago of why do we do things against our better interest uh, by the way we find this in scripture as well about you know mm-hmm. throughout the new and old testament this this struggle with distraction this struggle with not doing what we say we're going to do it's certainly not a new problem We have to ask ourselves on a deeper level, you know, first principles, why do we do anything? Not just why do we do things against our best interest. Why do we do anything and everything? Hmm. And most people will tell you that the seat of human motivation is about carrots and sticks. It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Uh, Freud calls this the pleasure principle. Neurologically, it's not true. Hmm. Not true. We do not do things in the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, that's an abstraction. In fact, neurologically, everything you do, you do for one reason, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Even even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, wanting, craving, desire, lusting, the reason we say love hurts is because neurologically that is exactly what is going on. Craving something, feeling good, is itself that desire psychologically destabilizing. So everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort. If you think about it, think about neuro, uh, biologically, right? So if you feel cold, the brain says, ooh, this is uncomfortable. You should put on a coat. If you feel hungry, the, you have, your, your brain says, oh, those hunger pangs don't feel good. You eat. If you eat too much, the brain says, oh, that's not comfortable. And now you feel stuffed. You stop eating. So those are physiological sensations. And of course, the same holds true for our psychological sensations, right? We talked about earlier how when you're lonely, you check Facebook. When you're bored, you check Reddit, the news, stock prices, all of these things we do to satiate these uncomfortable internal triggers. So this means, therefore, that if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that therefore means that time management is pain management. if we don't have tactics ready to go for how to deal with discomfort, we will always succumb to one thing or another, whether it's overeating, over drinking, over consuming the news, whatever we waste our time and later regret always comes down to the same common source. It's not a character dysfunction. It's simply an impulse control problem around how we do not know how to deal with discomfort so that it leads us to traction rather than distraction.
0: So in the time we have left uh, together today, Nir, I'd love for you, and the book is hyper, hyper practical, short chapters, very doable. You can work through it. Ah, it's not an easy read in the sense that there's a lot of application, but it's not a complicated read. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, this is what you
2: Thank do. You. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to make, you know, at the end of every chapter, there's actually a chapter summary. You know, I, I read a lot of books and I, I find that many books are written with the kind of language that it's almost like the author doesn't want you to understand because right. if you summarize the chapter, it actually would be a really simple concept that didn't need to be written over 30 pages. So at the end of every chapter, if you're the kind of person who likes to skim, no problem, you can go to that chapter summary at the end of the chapter uh, and and get all the goodies. <laughs> it's so
0: good, you know, we're baking that into my next book too. We're gonna oh, yeah, have chapter good, summaries good. at the end because that's even good to look back on. And it's, mm-hmm. you're, you're hyper practical. So I've loved that we've lived in the theoretical because I think if you understand the presuppositions, the way you're motivated, it's good. Um, but let's just assume most of us are distracted. So how do you become, give us some broad strokes into becoming undistractable, indistractable.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So just like there was four parts of the hook model, there's four parts to the indistractable model. So let me just walk through those four real quick. The first step is to master the internal triggers. Okay, so that we have a strategy in place, many strategies in place, so that when we feel these uncomfortable emotional sensations, we know what to do with that discomfort. You know, what a lot of people are told these days, unfortunately, by the self-help industry, is that feeling bad is bad. That feeling uncomfortable, you have to either medicate, you have, to, you have a character flaw, you have to go see a psychiatrist, something's wrong with you if you're not happy all the time, and that's ridiculous, that is mm. not true. Uh, we have discomfort for a very important reason. It helps us strive to do better. And so we can harness that discomfort. And so it leads us towards traction rather than distraction if we know what to do with it. So it's the first section of the book is all about how do you uh, master these internal triggers. The second section is about making or turning your traction, sorry, uh, making time for traction, which is all about turning your values into time. And this is a critically important point out of the people I interviewed for this book over the past five years. It's amazing how every high performer, whether it's a business leader, an athlete, they all take their time very seriously. They plan their day. And I show you exactly how to do that and how more importantly, you probably heard about the importance of planning your time, but what about how to synchronize your time with the various stakeholders in your life? So how to synchronize it with your your spouse with your boss it's a life-changing practice and i tell you how to do that schedule syncing process the third step is about hacking back the external triggers and so this is where we go systematically through all of these external triggers in our life from our phones to our computers to meetings oh my goodness how much time do we spend in stupid distracting meetings to emails To uh, open floor plan offices, that actually turns out to be the greatest source of distraction in the modern American workplace. 80% of survey respondents said the number one source of distraction was other people interrupting them during their work. How do you hack back that? I tell you exactly how. The final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we can use what's called a pre-commitment device as the fail safe, as the firewall, to make sure that as a last resort, we don't get distracted. So it's really about those four key strategies. And then I give you lots and lots and lots of tactics in each one of those four strategy buckets. Can we break
0: that down just a little bit more and go back to the beginning? So I want to talk about motivation. And I think you're right, you know, uh, and congratulations on your weight loss. You look uh, incredible Thanks. fit right now. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's something I can always lose 10 more pounds. And you know, my wife's pointed out to me and so have a few friends that a lot of eating is emotional and you feel stressed oh, yeah. or you feel sad. Uh, is, it, is part of that just going, okay, why am I going to check Instagram right now? Why am I jumping on Reddit? Why, I was just in email 20 minutes ago. Why am I in it again? It, it, is, it, is it like part of that just pausing and going, what am I doing? Like, can you, can you unpack that a little bit more?
2: Sure. So the, the analog to food is, is, is very appropriate. So when I was clinically obese, uh, I would love to have told you that it was big, bad McDonald's and right. Frito-Lay doing it to me. It wasn't, it wasn't. It was because I ate when I was sad. I ate when I was feeling lonely. I ate when I was mad at myself for eating too much. Mm. That's why I overate. It was an emotion problem. It was not a character flaw uh, or these big bad companies doing it to me. That's an excuse, it's not true. And it wasn't until I faced that fact and I frankly figured out what was going on in my life and did something about those problems and for the problems i couldn't solve i learned tactics to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner so there's a few things we can do one of the things that we can do is to note the distraction and so this is a very Mm -hmm. important step very very simple psychologists tell us that by simply noting that sensation so in every copy of the book there's what we call a distraction tracker and you can Mm -hmm. print this out for yourself as well Where what we're doing is we're simply noting that the the distraction. We're writing it down on a piece of paper as soon as we can after the distraction, and by simply naming what that distraction was, that's the first step to getting control over it, getting Mm. agency over it. Then we have to realize there's only three things that cause any and every distraction, right? Every procrastination, uh, it's all about this impulse control problem, and it's only three reasons for why that might happen. It's either an internal trigger an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it, there's only one Mm. of three reasons. And so the key here is, is not to never get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time, but here's the difference between someone who is indistractable and someone who is not indistractable. Before I wrote this book, I would get distracted by something, and then the next time I would get distracted by it again, and again, and again. Paolo Coelho has this great quote, and he said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. I had made the decision by allowing the same mistake over and over again to allow myself to get distracted. So
0: I like that. Internal, external, or what was the third?
2: A planning problem.
0: A planning problem. Because I think that pretty much summarizes my life. It was like, oh yeah, I was bored. I was hungry. I was tired. I was sad. Uh, External, my phone buzzed. My phone rang. Somebody knocked on the door or, uh, the third, which I keep forgetting. Sorry. Plan,
2: but, planning problem. Where, a planning problem. See, right. I yeah, just, appreciate. I had no
0: plan for the day and I just kind of totally went into reactive mode. Right. Um, I know we've only got a few minutes left and I really appreciate the generosity with your time. My pleasure. But, Thank um, you. it's so practical near your book. Um, can you like, I, I'm, I'm thinking you've got that picture of a guy's desktop. Uh, Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, Walk us through just some of the external stuff that we do. I have been an evangelist for turning all notifications off on your phone for years. You have hacks like that. Walk us through just a handful of really practical guys. Here's how you get rid of some of the external distractions.
2: So there's all kinds of tactics that you can use. And again, the tactics are less important than the strategy. Strategy is, or sorry, tactics are what you do, but Mm. strategy is why you do it. So it's not necessarily as important about, okay, you know, use this notification feature or this software. There's lots of them, tons of them. I give you tons of resources. If you go to indistractable.com, you will get more tactics than you can ever apply in your entire life, but they're there for you, okay? But what's more important than tactics is the strategies, understanding those four crucial steps of master the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. Instead of the the hacking back the external triggers piece, which I think is, is actually the easiest part, you know, the turning off notifications, which, by the way, you know, two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Wow. Can we honestly say that technology is addicting us and hijacking our brains? We haven't even taken five minutes to turn off those. Please just do that. For yourself. Pretty simple to do. Yeah. yeah, anybody can do it. And you don't have to do all this stuff all at once. You know, the, the, the distractions that really get people are the ones that they don't realize are happening. For example, in the open floor plan office, open floor plan offices save companies tons of money in real estate expenses, but they are a hotbed of distraction. Number one cause of distraction, according to 80% of survey respondents. So I tell you how to deal with that. One of these simple solutions that you can download at indistractable.com, it actually is inside the book itself if you buy the physical copy, is what's called a screen sign. A screen sign is this piece of cardstock. You rip it out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it tells your colleagues, if you work in an open floor plan office, it tells your colleague, it says bright red, it says, I'm indistractable, please come back later. Mm-hmm. Okay? Super simple, incredibly effective. And what's so great about this is that it starts spreading the message throughout the workplace, okay? Because what, what I found in this book, you know, only half the book is about stuff you can do for yourself. The other half of the book is about the other environments we operate in. You know, a distraction is a problem of society. It's a culture problem. So there's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. I mean, this is the Mm. skill of the century. If you you think the world is distracting now, just wait (sighs) a few years. It's going to be more distracting for your kids. So it's absolutely imperative we teach them how to be indistractable. There's a section on how to have indistractable relationships. And then there's a section on how to build an indistractable workplace. And so when we take steps like this, and we show others that we are indistractable ourselves, whether it's in a corporate setting by using this screen sign or, you know, if you have kids, I, I hear this all the time about how parents complain about how their kids are so distracted, the video games, the social media, and meanwhile, they're shouting that their kids to get off Fortnite while they're checking email on their own phone. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. You know, kids are hypocrisy detection devices. They have like little electrodes. They're constantly searching for when you're a hypocrite. And so you have to become indistractable yourself if you want your kids to know this skill set as well. And the same goes in the workplace, that by setting this example for others, this is how I think we're going to change the world so that mm. all of us become indistractable. And, and if I can interject a quick anecdote, we've been here before. You know, I talk about in the book how when I was a kid, I was born in the 70s, but I remember the 80s very clearly. And I remember in the early 80s, uh, we had in our household— ashtrays in our living room oh yeah now, my pa- you remember this right so oh, yeah everyone, i remember anyone born after like 1982 1983 you're not gonna know what we're talking about this is gonna seem absolutely crazy but there was a time that people would walk into each other's homes and without asking light up cigarettes mm-hmm. they would just do that <laughs> This was very common behavior. People used to
0: smoke at work when I first started in my twenties. People would smoke in their offices. It's
2: crazy. Exactly. And so today, that would be unthinkable. You would never walk into someone's living room and just assume you could light up a cigarette. That'd be crazy. Can you imagine if someone came over to your house and did that? You kick them out. Uh, I don't know what would happen. It would be yeah,
0: you'd drop dead. I think
2: <laughs> right of shock. Uh huh. So so what happened? Right. Was there a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No, you can, you can do that. There's no law that says you can't do that. What changed is that people started sticking up and saying, no, I have an identity here. I am a non-smoker. My mom did this one day. She threw away the ashtrays. And when one of her friends came over and lit up a cigarette, she said, oh, I'm sorry. We are non-smokers. We don't smoke. If you'd like to smoke, if you'd be so kind to go outside. Mm -hmm. And at the time, this was so offensive. How dare you? This was so rude to ask someone to go outside to smoke. And of course, today, you wouldn't dream of someone coming over and and just lighting a cigarette in your living room because we spread what's called social antibodies. Mm -hmm. We inoculated society to these antisocial harmful behaviors, and that's exactly what we need to do now with distraction. By calling yourself indistractable, by being the kind of person who lives with personal integrity who does what they say they're going to do, who decides for themselves, look, I'm not going to let my time and attention and my life be controlled by others. I am going to decide for myself. By being indistractable, you send out ripples to the rest of the world, and hopefully the rest of the world will change as well.
0: Well, I got to tell you, the book really helped me, and uh, your work has really helped me. Anything else you want to add? And then tell us where we can find you online, near?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. So my website is near and far.com, but near is spelt like my first name. It's N I R and far. And, uh, so there's all kinds of resources there. By the way, if you go to near and far, there's an 80 page workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book, but it's there for you. It's complimentary to help you become indistractable. And if you do end up getting the book, make sure you keep the order number. Okay. Very important. Keep the order number, whether you get on Amazon or your local bookstore, doesn't matter or on audible, keep the order number. Go to indistractable.com and there there's a core, a video course that's waiting for you. It's complimentary. As long as you enter in that order number to show you about the book, you can get access to that free video course as well. And that's all at indistractable. It's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com.
0: Nir, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, we covered an awful lot in that interview. And if you want more, we have transcripts and show notes over at carrienewhoff.com slash episode 347. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, hey, if you interact with us on social, we'll try to interact back with you. So uh, Instagram is where a lot of this stuff happens. Of course, Facebook, Twitter, also there. Haven't made it over to TikTok yet. Yeah, maybe one day. Anyway, um, hey, what I'm thinking about is coming up in just a moment. But next episode, guess what? We got Patrick Lencioni back. Pat's one of my favorite people. I think this is third time on the podcast. And we have a fascinating conversation about all things quarantine, how he's changing his mind about digital, he was completely opposed to it, and also the true motive for leadership. So here's an excerpt of that conversation.
1: There's no love in not confronting people about their behavior or their performance. And it doesn't serve that person, it doesn't serve the group, and it doesn't serve the culture. And yet we find reasons to do that because we don't want to be unpopular or we don't want to be uncomfortable. I think that's the biggest one. Mm. We don't want to wade through that. And Alan Mulally, the CEO who turned Ford Motor Company around, the most important thing he did is he held his executives accountable for their behaviors. And he would just go to them and say, you can't talk to people like that during meetings. Wow. Lovingly. And they'd go, well, I don't know if I can change. He goes, that's okay. We could still be friends. You just can't work here. But, but I, I'll still be your friend, and I know it's hard, and I don't want you to think I won't like you, but to work here at this church means when you come to meetings, you're gonna to have to admit when you're wrong. You can do it.
0: It's coming up next time. Subscribers, you'll get it absolutely free. And of course, we've also got Bob Goff, Ryan Hawk, Danielle Strickland, uh, Darius Daniels, Henry Cloud, uh, Levi Lusco, John Tyson, Sam Collier, so many more um, coming up this summer. Uh, I'm so excited to bring you this lineup, and we've been working really hard on it. So thanks to the team. uh, Thanks to you, leaders. We just want to get into your corner and bring you the best conversations in leadership today. So what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the return to church, reopening everything, and kind of a no-man's land or no-person land that it's so easy to get into uh, today's What I'm Thinking About is brought to you by Serve HQ. Make sure you check out ServeHQ's online software subscription tools for churches. You can communicate with everybody safely and securely by going to servehq.church and get a free, no-obligation, 14-day trial account. Also, check out Nona Jones' newest book, From Social Media to Social Ministry, pre-order, and you'll get a free guide at digitaldiscipleshipbook.com. So I am thinking about a trap that uh, I think it's just so easy to fall into. And I want to walk you through that right now. So churches are reopening, even in Canada, where I live, uh, slowly reopening at lower capacities. Uh, But there's one particular trap to watch out for. So the trend right now, at least in the early days of reopening uh, during or after COVID, I don't know what you would call this, but it's people are seeing about 10 to 40% of their former in-person attendance. Now, some of that 100% due to the virus, right? There's no vaccine right now. So older people aren't going to come. A lot of churches haven't figured out kids ministry yet. That's not safe. So families are going to stay away. But a lot of leaders thought that reopening Sunday would be like that famous iconic scene with Chris Farley's entrance on David Letterman, where he just kind of runs through the crowd and goes crazy. Yeah, not happening, not happening. So what does all this mean? Well, Here's my hunch. COVID has probably been accelerating trends that have been happening for decades. Two trends in particular. Number one, declining church attendance. I mean, we broke pattern, we broke habit for three months, right? With churches being physically closed, uh, open online. But declining church attendance has been intensifying for decades. So I wonder if one of the things under the lower attendance numbers is uh, a growing number of people just said, yeah, you know what? We're probably not going back. Or, this is the second trend, we're not going back as often as we used to. Uh, So for, again, decades, Christians, even committed Christians, have been attending church less often. So what does that mean? Well, maybe the low numbers of in-person worship attendance isn't just COVID-related. Maybe it's an acceleration of the non-attendance trends churches have seen for decades. Now, I know leaders are tired. You're tired. I get tired too, okay? And you're like, I don't even want to think about that. Like, leave me alone. Look, <laughs> I get it. But denial isn't a strategy. And wise leaders don't let fatigue make decisions for them. So what do you do in, the, in, in light of this? Well, two observations. Number one, you're probably currently staffed for where you're seeing very low returns. So if uh, in-person worship attendance is already a fraction of what it used to be, think about it. Most churches are staffed to do what? Do in-person worship attendance, right? That's what you do. So as you're reopening, and and trust me, COVID has made this harder because now everything has to be sanitized, sterilized, you know, hand sanitizers, masks, social distancing. It's more effort to reopen church, but you're getting the lowest returns. And if you're not careful, uh, if you focus all of your attention on in-person attendance and in-person uh, meetings and worship services, you could easily end up behaving like the CD salesperson in the age of Spotify, or the mall owner in the age of Amazon. So if your mission is to fill buildings, then just keep going with that strategy. But if your mission is to reach people, it might be time to rethink things. And then this leads me to sort of the main point. You're probably deeply understaffed for where you're seeing the highest reach. So my guess is, whether you pivoted to online for the first time in March of 2020, or whether you've been online for years, like a lot of churches have, even pre-COVID, you were already seeing most of your traction happening online. I know at our church for years now, more people have watched online than have been in the room. And we'll have like 1,500 people who show up to one of our facilities pre-COVID, but, you know, multiples of that who would watch online. Well, when COVID happened, uh, that just accelerated. Our church has grown significantly online. A lot of churches have grown significantly online. And even though there was that little bit of like post-Easter slump for a lot of churches, I promise you the internet is not going away anytime soon. So, Think about this. You're overstaffed where you're getting a fractional result and you're understaffed for where you're still probably seeing the highest reach. Right? Look at your numbers. Look at them carefully. Way more people. And even if in the live stream, people aren't tuning in as much as you would like, just do live plus seven. So go through your Sunday stats and then look at the next seven days. I'm, I'm positive most churches will have more traction online than in person. So if that's the case, why are you so understaffed there? Most churches are spending ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of their time and effort and money on in-person services. So that would be like a bad investment strategy. You would say, you know, if you're putting all of your discretionary money into an investment that is producing a tiny return, and meanwhile you're going, oh yeah, that one that's producing a hundred percent return, yeah, we're not that interested in reinvesting in that. You would never do that, but. Um, I, I think it's time to do that. And maybe what you want to do this summer is rethink how you allocate your staffing dollars, your focus as a leader, and also the energy of your team. Because digital ministry scales in a way that physical ministry does not. And why invest the majority of your time, energy, and money into the platform that has the lowest return and the lowest potential? Now, I don't think in-person worship is going away. I think it's good that we get together. I think it's awesome. I miss people too. And we're always going to have physical services. But why would you underinvest in the area that has the greatest future return? You probably won't have a big impact online when you spend 1% of your staffing resources on it. And then just start treating the people you reach online as though they're real people because they are. So those are some thoughts. (laughs) The trap is that you end up overinvesting. In something that's producing a limited return and under investing in the platform that is producing the greatest return. So I hope that's helpful. I've got a written version of these thoughts on my blog over at carrynewhoff.com. We have almost 70,000 leaders uh, signed up for a daily email I send as well. If you head on over to carrynewhoff.com or if you can't spell that, leadlikeneverbefore.com will get you there. Just sign up, give us your email, we'll give you uh, little nuggets like this almost every day. Thanks so much for listening back next time with a fresh episode. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth
2: to help you lead like never before.